This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. show ladies and gentlemen my name is ben my name is noel citizen noel that is citizen noel yes not a consumer well you know i, I do consume quite a bit of things <laughs> but um, i like to think of myself more as a uh, a conscientious citizen mm-hmm. of these here united states mm-hmm. noel and i just for a peek behind the curtain we have been uh in the studio for a while today working on uh working on a couple of different projects right yeah, we have another show called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. We just spent an hour and a half talking about John F. Kennedy. So we're both a little punchy, <laughs> but hopefully that will translate into an entertaining episode of Ridiculous History. That's right. That's our show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are. Mm-hmm. So we've had a crazy time, you know, starting this show and looking at not just single historical episodes in isolation, Uh, We've been exploring the context in which these events occur. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, and one thing that I think fascinates both of us is how stuff that would seem on the surface really small has these universal, ubiquitous, and important uh, implications. Absolutely, and that is absolutely the case today with our topic of when and why did America start calling its citizens consumers? Which is such a good question. And uh, before you brought this to me, 
I had never thought about this. Like I, I, it just slid by my mind and I was reading so many different stories, you know, news stories, essays, creative nonfiction, where people, pundits, experts, authors use these phrases interchangeably, which is kind of weird when you think about it, you know? Uh, so there was a recent opinion piece, uh, that was published in a political newspaper called The Hill. And in this piece, uh, which is titled How Trump's Immigration Plans Hurt American Citizens' Pocketbooks, the author, Maurice Goldman, uh, criticized the Trump administration's plans for a crackdown on immigration by pointing to the cost of building the infamous border wall, uh, the cost of hiring enforcement agents, the cost of reducing legal immigration channels. But a particular interest for our purposes today, Goldman used the phrase consumer in in the body of the text. In the title, it's citizen, but he notes you, the consumer, will pay for, you know, the the plans, the political plans if this wall and stuff goes through. And like you just said, I mean, is this an issue of semantics or was this – intentional. Um, and the answer to that is pretty interesting. Um, it's hard to say quite when this took place, but in the last handful of years, there has been an increasing tendency to use the term consumer uh, interchangeably with citizen. Mm-hmm. And that's even when the conversation has to do with the economy. Yeah. And again, it's it, it seems like on the surface a small thing, but political experts – growing numbers of political experts are concerned with this. And they're arguing that the choice of words signals a a shift in how we uh, see ourselves as individuals participating in the United States, right? And what our role is in American society. So the people who are concerned are saying that this is moving the individual away from this idea of citizenship, working with others in collaboration towards some common greater good, right, and toward something else. Yeah, something that's much more selfish and and individualistic and based on the acquisition of things that can also be turned around and applied to ideas or the way our vote is almost uh, equivalent to the way we spend money. Exactly. And uh, there's a professor named Jathan Sadowski. Jathan? Jathan. You, Jay- you developed a lisp just now? No, Jathan, like Nathan, but with a J. Oh, I know. I've never seen that one before. I know. That's a new one. Uh, he argues that using the term consumer interchangeably with the term citizen has, quote, become part of our default discourse, the normal way uh, we view society and people. Uh, And he says, just look at the recent presidential election. The consumer versus citizen language is often used with analysts and pundits talk about elections. And this goes to the point that that Noel highlighted. Voters are just consumers with preferences. And the election is a marketplace of products to choose from. To continue the quote, in the store, we vote with our dollar. We are told that elections are functionally the same thing. You just use a ballot instead of a buck to cast your vote. This understanding of democratic processes as a marketplace is just one more place where the citizen is overtaken by the consumer, end quote. And 
Both of these words have been around for centuries and centuries, right? The word citizen dates back to the 1300s. Originally, it meant the inhabitant of a city. Yeah, the um, entry in the online etymology dictionary for citizen um, says, from sight, citizen of the world, translates uh, in Greek to cosmopolites. Oh, that's cool. That's a good one. Uh, on the other side, the... Um, the evolution of citizen to mean what we take it to mean today, a person who has both rights in a society and responsibilities to that society, that didn't come around until around 1610. Uh, the, the, the term consumer arose uh, shortly after the original version of the term citizen. I love the entry for that one in the online etymology dictionary. It says, quote, one who squanders or wastes, um, agent noun from consume in economic sense, one who uses up goods or articles opposite of producer. And that dates back to 1745. Uh, then it also says consumer goods is uh, attested from 1890 um, in consumers for a representative basket of goods and services. And that actually is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Mm, yeah, so that's the, – these are these are legit sources and no one is saying that these words just suddenly emerged like in 1970 or whatever. The, like many words in English, uh, this is an evolving language, right? It's a living language. So like many other terms – the term citizen and consumer have undergone evolution over the years. And uh, the, the question is what, what these mean today, right? According to Michael Munger, who is the director of the philosophy, politics, and economics program at Duke University's political science department, the word consumer, although it existed – as we had said, for centuries, it didn't really appear in print until 1900. Ben, have you ever used uh, – done an, a Google Ingram search? I I only started because of this. Yeah, it's really interesting. So you can actually like search for a combination of words, compare two words, and it'll it'll track it um, over time as it appears in uh, this you know vast online collection of books that Google has digitized. And starting in 1800 and going to the year 2000, this Ingram search tracks the use of citizen versus consumer, and this is uh, in fractions of a percent. So starting in 1800, citizen is a clear winner with consumer very, very low, just like a, a tiny fleck above 0%. And then as time goes on, starting in around 1910, 1919 to be precise, there is a significant spike in citizen. Mm -hmm. Um and then – and as this is going on, consumer is kind of rising. Then there's a crossover point in 1956 at which point consumer goes through the roof mm -hmm. um, and ending in 2000, consumer well above citizen in terms of its use in uh, literature. Right. Yeah, and it's fascinating to – see this in laid out in an in infographic form because Noel is absolutely correct. You can see the the direct correlation. You can see the switch point at which people, or writers, authors at least, started preferring the term consumer 
to yeah. the term citizen. And now it's used about three times as often. Uh, Munger theorizes that this happened, this, this change in the usage had largely to do with the rise of progressive politics in the 20th century. And here's a quote from Munger, quote, the progressives primarily saw citizens as being helpless trapped by large forces, especially corporations, that citizens couldn't deal with. Um, and he uh, attributes Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal social programs that came about in the 30s, as well as Lyndon Johnson's Great Society effort in the 60s, um, as reinforcing the idea that participation in politics was mostly a way to just get your share of the pie, you know, mm-hmm. get a piece. Mm-hmm. So it's it's less of a civic duty. It's less of a what can I do for my country and more of a what can my country do for me. Exactly. And this increasing use of the term consumer doesn't just apply to people who are writing about politics. It applies to politicians themselves. And uh, when we're talking about President Johnson's Great Society stuff in the 1960s, uh, we are also examining the rise of some things that would surprise the average voter. Marketing. Right. Marketing. Yes, marketing, which means that uh, we are going to take a little bit of a side trail into a man named Edward Bernays. And Edward Bernays, as you know, is a uh, is a guy that you and I have spent a lot of time on in the past. Yeah, he's sort of the big grandpappy of uh, marketing and this idea of selling things to a mass audience, including various methods from billboards to magazine articles to later television. Think Mad Men, you know, the television show, um, the whole world that's depicted in that, the Madison Avenue um, kind of uh, ad agency uh, universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was for sellers of products like breakfast cereals and cars and antiperspirants, all of these modern things that everyone just had to have. Um, and today, you know, we, we can micro target people's preferences, you know, using these campaigns and this massive amounts of data that can be analyzed much, much, much more quickly than in the past. Uh, and now it looks at individual voters' attitudes and their corresponding behavior um, and can kind of figure out what might be the best way to actually reach them in the same way as, you know, appealing to somebody about a particular type of uh, microwave meal. Right. And that that in itself is important for us to note that in itself is not inherently a bad thing. However, it is an important thing and it is crucial that people be aware of what is happening This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. 
It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated, experienced drivers, and you receive those real-time notifications, as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents, plus you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. (laughs) Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. So tell me a little bit about Bernays. Oh, man, I'm so glad you asked. Okay, so Edward Bernays, get this, nephew of Sigmund Freud. True story. Can't be a coincidence. <laughs> Can't be a coincidence, right? Uh, Edward, Edward Bernays took a lot of psychological concepts and said, well, how can we, I hesitate to use the word weaponize, but maybe, maybe apply is a better word. He said, how, how can we apply these concepts about how uh, the workings of the human mind and uh, translate them into quantifiable, predictable, real world results? How can we push people not only to make the decision we want them to make, but to make them feel that it is their decision, that they have agency in this choice. He has done so much stuff. So I, I really appreciate that you mentioned the concept of breakfast, right? So before Edward Bernays, the typical breakfast in the, in the United States would be something like a cup of coffee and maybe a, a croissant, or a croissant, a croissant, croissant. <laughs> yes, yes. Or a uh, you know a a bagel, a couple pieces of toast, maybe some butter. 
A bagel and toast? That's a lot of carbs, dude. Yeah, you put the toast. It's a, it's a, it's a toast sandwich. So you get the bagel and you put the toast in between. That doesn't sound very healthy. And that's actually kind of the point because, uh, what ended up being foisted upon the American, uh, consumer was this idea of bacon for breakfast, right? Yes. Yeah. Edward Bernays, make no bones about it, is the reason that bacon became part of the American breakfast because without getting too deep into it, here's what happened. In the 1920s, Edward Bernays was approached by a company called the Beech Nut Packing Company. They're the people who made beech nut gum at the time, right? Mm -hmm. But they did a lot of other stuff and they had a lot of other uh, concerns and one of their big concerns was pork. Edward, they asked the guy, uh, we need to increase demand. We have all this trash meat laying around. You know, how do we, uh, again, foist it on the American public? <laughs> right. Exactly. Just so. And he thought, well, we could do the typical sort of advertisement at the time where we could just have somebody be like, hey, I'm cool. I'm wearing a suit and get a nice tie and I like bacon. You should too. And that was, you know, that was the approach that advertising used. But he did something very different. Mm -hmm. And he said – well, let me let me conduct a quote unquote poll of doctors, of medical experts, and let me let me twist the questions in such a way that they will all end up agreeing or appearing to agree that bacon is not only good for you, but should be eaten by any person with half a concern about their health early in the morning and give them energy and it's substantial. And that's the thing. It worked. It not only did it work, but it continues to work today. Edward Bernays, who could be the subject of his own show, right? He uh, went on to uh, tie smoking tobacco with women's suffrage. He went on to help support propaganda, pushing the American public, citizens or consumers, whatever you want to call them, into supporting a coup in South America. And he continues to influence things today. This is one of the correlations, one of the one of the points at which people stopped thinking about the average voter as a citizen and started thinking about them as consumers. Well, it's the way, you know, politicians have to essentially market themselves uh, and, and, and dress up their platforms in such a way that appeals to different voting bases. Uh, and a lot of it is based on entirely based on rhetoric, which you could you know, kind of equate to something like ad copy, mm -hmm. where it's like, sure, it's technically true and it's it's backed up by science or like, you know, facts. But at the end of the day, it's this like packaged, curated version of the truth. Mm -hmm. And that is the way things are today. And the government itself, in fact, is is actually judged as if it were uh, a, a business, a consumer business, the American Customer Satisfaction Index actually rates the federal government on how people feel about their interactions with it, how, how they feel. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? So there's Bernays at work right now. And it actually got a 68% positive rating in 2016, which was up from 63.9% the previous year. So um, God, I'd be interested to know how, how, how that ranks today. Yeah, and the methodology behind it. People who have a problem with this interchangeable use of citizen and consumer, uh, they argue that there are fundamental differences between the two 
roles in society and that they should not be confused. So how about this? I want to outline some of these proposed differences and see what you think. Sure. Okay. So is there an issue of morality? You know, uh, earlier we mentioned the concept of doing stuff for other people for the greater good versus doing something for one's self. So one of the proposed differences would be that the job of any consumer is to always choose what works best for them in the marketplace, regardless of any other considerations. Totally. Right? And that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's also the human condition, though, isn't it? You know? Yeah, but that, that therein lies the issue with this whole notion uh, of, like, being pulled away from the idea of being part of a whole or being a member of a team and going to a much more self-serving attitude that's kind of – codified and bolstered by the use of these uh, these these words and the distinctions that they sort of imply, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then if a by, – by this understanding, if this difference is true, then by virtue of voting, a consumer is saying, what will make me better directly now? Whereas a citizen would be saying, what can I do to improve the world. Yeah, conditions for everyone, for my neighbors. Yeah, yeah, like a rising tide carries all vessels. Totally. And a, a good citizen then would be in their own way kind of kind of heroic or very moral. That's what it sounds like, mm -hmm. right? And a good consumer would be getting the best deal. There's another difference, which is that citizens are comfortable with a degree of uncertainty. I'm doing my best to help the group, the community, the nation, etc. I'm not sure how it's going to work out, but I know my intentions are what I believe to be good. Whereas a consumer says, you know, if I'm if I'm paying for this service, whether that's through time, whether that's through money, mm -hmm. whether that's through exchange of materials, then I need to be certain that this transaction occurs, you know? So with with this idea um there's this implication that a citizen knows that society has uh, what HR departments around the world call areas of opportunity. God. <laughs> you remember that one? I do. You know how much I love these corporate terms. <laughs> yes, yes. Synergy? Synergy. Is there synergy? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and cadence. Gosh. That's a new one, making the rounds. Well, the, you know, the idea holds up, though, because it, the concept then would be that you and I and everyone who has a vote understands that we can play a part in improving society in whatever way we think it should be improved, right? And that these problems will not be fixed themselves. And then the on the other side, the concept of a consumer would be that someone expects to purchase essentially a product or a service and that the people providing that product or service, it's on them to fix stuff, right? So I voted for you. Just do the thing. You know what I mean? And uh, we we know that this is a very, very contentious 
thing. Well, let's go through a little bit since this is a ridiculous history. Yeah. Um, let's just talk a little bit about the history of the idea of humans as consumers. There's a fantastic article by Frank Trentman in The Atlantic um, that has a couple of great quotes from the famous American thinker Adam Smith, one of which is, uh, consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production, which was from his uh, treatise, I guess you could call it, The Wealth of Nations from 1776. That's a pretty famous quote. Uh, a lesser known quote from him that really sums up this whole idea comes from 1759's The Theory of Moral Sentiments, um, where he kind of really hones in on the, uh, as Trentman puts it, the social and psychological impulses that cause us to want to get a bunch of stuff, <laughs> knickknacks, paddywhacks, tchotchkes, gadgets. Um, and this quote, uh, again from Smith, does a really good job of summing all that up. He observed that people wanted to, quote, stuff their pockets with little conveniences and then buying coats with more pockets to carry even more. By themselves, tweezer cases, elaborate snuff boxes, and other baubles might not have much use. But Smith pointed out what mattered was that people looked at them as means of happiness. Um, and uh, he goes on to say that it was in people's imaginations that these objects became part of a harmonious system and made the pleasures of wealth grand and beautiful and noble. And even, you know, ancient Greek thinkers, philosophers from, you know, Plato uh, to St. Augustine, um, they kind of condemned the pursuit of of stuff as uh, as being inherently uh, wicked and, and mm -hmm. self-serving. Um, so there is this history of the idea uh, of being a citizen as being much more important. And if it feels like throughout history, obviously there there is that selfish impulse. But as a whole, civilization and societies have largely maintained because of this notion of you know, the whole is more important than the individual parts and that we're all banding together to make a better life for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And this leads us to something, a, a pretty interesting theory uh, that you've probably heard of, which is the tragedy of the commons. And the tragedy of the commons is this economic theory that says uh, if you're in a shared resource system, right, uh, so you're in a community where everybody has like a common good, mm -hmm. let's call it water, air, 1979 uh, LPs. Who knows? Just like it's something for the people, mm -hmm. the way that you and I typically order fries when we hang out. We do. Boiled peanuts, sure. Yeah. Um, the idea is that when individual users are acting independently according to their own self-interest, they will tend to behave in ways that deplete or spoil those common resources mm -hmm. because – Everybody everybody wants their piece of the pie and would prefer not to have to help create the pie, right? And obviously so many people have argued uh, complex ideological questions based on how to address this dilemma of individuals trying to improve society to take a line from the uh, Simpsons to embiggen society uh, or to improve themselves, even if such a thing might have uh, dangerous consequences, right? Or unforeseen consequences down the road. And it, it might sound 
It might sound, folks, as if Noel and I are dwelling on semantics, but we are not because it turns out that science backs this up. In a 2012 study in the journal Psychological Science, uh, they found that choice of words can exert a subtle influence upon how we see ourselves, which then, you know, naturally influences how we behave. So in one part of the study, people who answered a, quote, consumer response survey tended to express more materialistic, self-centered values. People who did a survey that was called a citizen survey tended to behave in a more uh, – a less selfish way. Yeah, and in another part of the same survey, the researchers looked at subjects with – gave them a hypothetical situation where people um, had to join together and share water from a well. And they were labeled as either consumers or citizens. And the um, members of the study that got the consumer label – tended to uh, be completely distrustful of their cohorts uh, and just didn't want to share the water. They just were a little crotchety about it. And they did not feel as though they were on a team or in partnership with the other subjects and just felt overall less tied to or responsible for the experience and, you know, well-being, honestly, of their uh, compatriots as opposed to those who were labeled citizens who felt just the opposite. Right, right. And now we, we, if we are, uh, called one name or another, it tends to affect our behavior. Now we see this article by Maurice Goldman becomes even more important. I don't want to say insidious, but I do want to say important because, you know, on some level it might feel, I don't know, condescending or diminutive to say, oh, you are not so smart, right? You are easily influenced. Right. If somebody if somebody calls me a name, that shouldn't influence my behavior already. But apparently it does. Apparently we are a little bit easier to steer than we would like to think. And this goes back to the Bernays thing. Right. The idea of a of a citizen versus a consumer in terms of active versus passive roles. Did you know that the uh, – I'm sure you've heard the use of the term consumption um, to refer to tuberculosis. Yes. You know? yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it was definitely uh, – had very, very negative connotations. I'm going back to the Atlantic article from Frank Trentman. He has a section where he talks about some of the history of the term consumption uh, and the – as he calls it, the heavy burden that it carried. And it was originally from the term – the Latin term consumere, which first presented itself in French in the 12th century and then into English and other European languages later. And, of course, it meant, as I said with the etymological um, origins earlier, mm-hmm. using up, wasting kind of implied of food or any other um, well, consumables, I guess, yeah. for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like I said, the idea of uh, tuberculosis or wasting disease being called consumption because it had this inherently like mm-hmm. it just eats you up. And that was uh, very much a sign of being irresponsible and not looking out for the greater good of your community or family, what have you. Not being a good citizen, and we would be remiss if we didn't just mention for a second everyone's favorite fictional consumptive, which is Val Kilmer playing Doc Holliday in Tombstone. Eh, 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 <laughs> bloody rack. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Oh man. What does he say? Who's who, Huckleberry? I'm your Huckleberry. Oh, you're, you're, I'm your. Huck, you're my Huckleberry. <laughs> ben. 
<laughs> Bromance for the ages. Bromance for the ages. And uh, history for the pages, which rhymes but doesn't really make sense if you think about it. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. So Josh Pasek is an assistant professor of communication studies at the University of Michigan. And he, he draws some conclusions based on this shift. And he says it seems to underscore a shift away from viewing Americans as having responsibility in our political system and toward a more individualist view of what it means to be American. So in his mind, the role of a citizen is more active and the role of a consumer is more passive. And in his mind, these are 
two different things, right? They're not synonyms. He says, your job as an American citizen requires that you fulfill key democratic norms, such as being informed, deliberating about political issues, and participating in civic and political life. As an American consumer, he says, your actions are relevant only to the extent that they respond to economic incentives. The responsibility to be engaged and participatory is not your own but instead depends upon a system that is oriented to bring you in. Unpack that for us, Ben. Okay, sure. I, w- I would love to. Uh, so, again, the idea the idea of citizenship as a responsibility, right? Like, I don't – if you're a citizen, you're not just supposed to show up and vote. You are supposed to put some research time into it, right, and be be aware. And, you know, let's – I mean, not for nothing, it's true that most people don't know their congressional district. Yeah, I mean, if I'm being honest, I voted the other day and there were a whole lot of names on the ballot that I was not 100 percent familiar with. There were some races that I'd followed very closely mm-hmm. and I knew what I was signing up for. But, um, you know, it's very difficult to be completely informed about every aspect of the political process. But I guess what the takeaway here is is that, you know, just you, you got to try to do your homework and, and consider beyond just, you know, your personal stake, what might be good for uh, your entire community. Because, you know, with names I didn't recognize on the ballot, if I had voted for somebody just out of sheer, you know, randomness, what, what if I accidentally voted for a monster or voted to keep an incumbent in power that had done bad things for the community and then needed to be replaced, you know? So mm-hmm. uh, if, if I had gone in with that consumer mentality about what's good for me, you know, and, and maybe I'm guilty of that in a certain sense. I would only know what directly inf- impacted me. Whereas if I had gone in with much more of a, uh, you know, citizen, good citizen attitude, then maybe I would have uh, thought about more what would affect areas that don't even affect me directly. You right. Know? You know, it's a it's a dilemma. And we are we are talking about the influence of behavior. We want to be very clear that we're not. We're not a show that's going to like lecture people about politics. Absolutely, yeah. Not. For us, this is for us. This is a dilemma, though. It's Be- a dilemma, and it's kind of a thought experiment too. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's a good way to say it because the the question then becomes, you know, is one uh, somehow better than the other, or are they just different? I I would say that they're different. I would say that uh, everybody has played the part of a citizen. Everybody's played the part of a consumer. At the same time, you know, you're not going into uh, Arby's, for instance, who is not a sponsor of the show. I'm just thinking, like, different is good. That Are they still around? Me. Yeah, they're oh, still around. I'm kidding. Those <laughs> funny commercials. But, like, you know, nobody's walking into Arby's and saying, you know, at the at the soda fountain or at the uh, little ketchup stand, no one's saying, like, what can I do to make this ketchup stand better for everyone who comes after me? Yeah. And, you know, speaking to uh, Pasek's quote about, you know, as an American consumer, your actions are relevant only to the extent they respond to economic incentives, meaning and sometimes those incentives are just personal fulfillment and, you know, mm-hmm. pleasure. Uh, and your job, not to restate what you already said, Ben, but your job as an American citizen requires you to fulfill key democratic norms, such as being informed and deliberating about political issues. So the idea that uh, there is this gray area or this kind of like fusion between the, the notion of a citizen and a consumer is potentially problematic for people making choices in, in elections mm-hmm. that actually help others or that that affect the greater good. If everyone's just voting for, you know, what will do 
good for themselves. And that also plays into how politicians market themselves. You know? Right, right. The same, the same techniques that Edward Bernays pioneered are now present not only in advertising but are, are present in a very real way in the political sphere. I got to tell you, man, did you ever uh, – did you, did you ever watch C-SPAN? I mean, if if there's something really crucial on, mm-hmm. um, but no, I, I have not. I don't just watch it like <laughs> my grandpapa used to, though. Yeah, I used to. I used to. Um, I used to watch uh, C-SPAN with my grandmother as well. Mm. Um, when Golden Girls wasn't on, she loved Golden Girls, Hee Haw, and C-SPAN. Beautiful woman. Yeah, it seems like a good mix. <laughs> and uh, and uh, one of the things that got me was years ago uh, we were watching C-SPAN. At her house, and uh, a congressperson was referring to a a bill they were trying to pass mm-hmm. as a product. Then uh, they said, "We're going to get this product out at the end of this time frame, and this product is going to, you know, be great for companies, all interested parties, stakeholders." And I didn't understand the term mm-hmm. because why would you call something? Like that, a product. You're selling it. Yeah. You're selling it to your constituents. And this guy, Frank Trittman, who wrote the article from The Atlantic that I was talking about a little bit, um, is a professor of history at the University of London. And he wrote a fantastic book called Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers from the 15th Century to the 21st. Um, and he thinks that the, the, the blurred distinction between these two uh, cohorts, which ultimately have become kind of the same thing, consumer and citizen, make it really hard for people to come together to solve problems, which is essentially what I was trying to get at, what we're both trying to get at, Ben. Uh, And this quote, I think, really sums it all up nicely. Quote, not all consumers see the world in the same way, and hence, concerted action is very difficult. That's what I was trying to get at, where, you know, when you have a politician that's marketing themselves to a particular voter base, and the... um, the desires of that voter base are kind of a conflagration mm-hmm. of like different uh, sort of self-serving desires. So it's very difficult to like pick out a platform or a thing or like to appeal to all of these different, you know, angles and get elected kind of requires some weird backwards logic and convoluted mm-hmm. thinking, you know, and especially when uh, so many of those interests might be contradictory. Exactly. Right. So. And here we are, 2017. <laughs> here we here we are, but history doesn't stop here. I have to wonder, Noel, what future historians will make of this shift, which, again, occurred without my knowledge at all. Like I, I, I did not notice, other than my spider sense tingling when I heard things, laws referred to as products. Mm-hmm. This totally whooshed over my head, man. I don't know. It's a little insidious though, right? It it kind of happens. It just sort of kind of creeps in, you Mm -hmm. know, without you even realizing it. So are we citizens or are we consumers? I think it's a, it's a choice (laughs) we have to make. I mean, obviously we're consumers when it comes to like, you know, I like buying stuff. I like, uh, you know, <laughs> nice clothes and, and things like that. But when you start integrating that into the political process and, and how you vote as though it were spending money and as though you're being marketed to, that's problematic, I think. And it's an interesting shift in history. And it's more than a little ridiculous. It is. It is more than a bit ridiculous. Uh, we hope that you find this dilemma or this this interesting differentiation 
as fascinating as we do, and we'd like to hear your thoughts. So please write into us and, and uh, let us know if you think this is a a big deal, if you think this is just relative, uh, relatively small matter of semantics, uh, and most importantly, let us know if you have found other linguistic shifts in your own experience, and let us know what you think the implications of those might be. You can write to Noel and I at ridiculous at howstuffworks.com. But that's not all. You can find us on the internet, too. Yeah, we're on the social media. We've got a Facebook page, Ridiculous History. Just Google that and, and, and give us a like. And uh, also, if you dig the show, please check us out on iTunes and write us a nice review. That helps kind of boost the show and the algorithm and all that. And hopefully more people can discover it. Yeah, because we, you know, we like doing the show and we'd like to continue doing it. So thanks for joining us for this episode. And uh, we hope to see you next time on Ridiculous History. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details.